0: Welcome to the Daily Cannon Podcast. Here to talk all things arsenal is your host, Matthew Wade. Welcome to another Daily Canon weekly podcast. It's quite a cheerful podcast this week because, well, we won again. Uh, We are once again retaining our rightful place in the top four of the table. And um, there were some points dropped by some of our rivals. And, of course, there's some very interesting things happening in West London as a result of some very terrible things happening in the Ukraine. And, obviously, these are a number of things that we need to talk about uh, joining me to talk about them is Paul Williams. How are you, Paul?
1: Very well, thank you, mate. How's yourself?
0: I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm obviously standard. Standard issue. I have a baby, for I'm tired. Uh, but uh, aside from that, uh, it's all gravy. He's turning a year old. So, uh, in fact, turning a year old in about uh, about 10 hours. So there we go. Ah, happy <laughs> Yes. So by the time anyone hears this, uh, my child, who none of you have ever met and have never seen, will be telling a year old. So I'm sure you're very excited to hear about that. But anyway, uh, talking about things that you might be more interested in talking about rather than my self-indulgence. Arsenal uh, had another relatively comfortable home victory against Leicester City, who, lest we forget, uh, were... (laughs) projected by many at the start of the season to be finishing above us. However, at this stage, compared to this stage last season, we are about 14 or 15 points better off, and they're about the same amount of points worse off. So, so much for that prediction. (laughs) Uh, As for the weekend's game, how was it for you?
1: Very enjoyable, actually. Well, uh, mostly very enjoyable. I think, obviously, that 20 minutes before half-time was a little bit... I said to the guys on the call, I I wasn't really up for watching a second half of football like that, Um, but that isn't what we got. So um, I thought it was an immensely positive, uh, controlled, and controlled in a way that uh, the previous weeks, when at Watford, wasn't. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, very controlled performance and. you know, uh, Martin Odegaard just continues uh, an incredible run of form he's on at the moment. I, um, I make the comparison on an Arsenal form that I've reconnected with recently. Um, to me, he's he's like the closest we've got to Santi Cazorla, and I realise that's not an exact comparison if he plays slightly higher up the pitch, but just in uh, the feints and the changes of direction. And the part, I guess, the passing is perhaps a bit more Ozil. um but but just everything good that we do comes through this uh, young Norwegian.
0: Uh, what, um, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just say it's just very exciting to think about how much better he may he may yet become.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, one of the key things that sets him apart from others that we've seen playing the position, particularly uh, at least one of the people you've mentioned, is that. His work rate isn't just in an attacking sense. I mean, Ozil always got stick for not working hard, yet always was top of the distance-covered shots, which actually is what should be expected of number 10s because they have to be constantly moved to get into space, create connections, et cetera, et cetera. But Ozil's uh, running back towards his own goal was spasmodic at best i think we would probably be fair to say and and seldom with the level of intensity to actually really challenge the opposition player in possession which is always the key thing i thought a lot of people you know particularly second rate pundits on the telly used to say he didn't didn't put any effort in but he just sort of put effort up to the point where it was ineffectual but he wasn't actually challenging a player because that really wasn't in his makeup um whereas erdegaard as we've seen is quite happy to stick his foot in uh, you know uh, not in a dirty sense but in terms of trying to really of the player in possession and to press with real intensity um, which means if he can continue to developing what he's showing in the in the attacking sense and while alongside that work rate you know we uh, we're, we're going to have uh, a really well class performer going forward um, and we're already seeing lots of hints of that at the moment week in week out which is the most exciting thing is that uh, you know the last month or so and, and much of the pre- proceeding for fixtures before that, you know, he's standing out in every game, um, despite the, the array of talent around him. Um, as you say, it was a it was a game that wasn't an entirely even game uh, in terms of the how our, our domination. But uh, I guess we'll start at the start. Uh, we came out fast. Leicester didn't particularly and uh, it didn't take us a great deal of time to get uh, a goal from what is perhaps Leicester's most well-recognised weak spot. Uh, I mean, yeah, just your thoughts on the first goal and and, and the first half of the first half.
1: Well, it's nice that um, finally, yeah, what was a recognised weakness for quite a long time at Arsenal's actually become quite a strength and mm. it's by no means the first time we've scored from a corner this season. I think I might even have been at a game where we scored from a corner, possibly two games in fact, um, Leeds and I think Southampton um, at home, Gabrielle scored from a corner. Um, so yeah, to, to to be able to prey on, on another team's weakness in that way is, uh, you know, I think that's an encouraging sign of development. Um, And I think, you know, you could look at the game and perhaps there was a slight lesser perspective in that they got done on a set piece and then the second goal was obviously a penalty. Um, Mm. So, but, you know, Chelsea Chelsea many years ago won titles based on being able to score goals at set pieces, you know, in tight games. Um, Mm. And I think when you think of the last two games, Two home games we've had against Leicester, where um, I mean, particularly the one two seasons back, where we absolutely hammered them in the first half, but only came away with a one goal advantage at half time. Mm. then Nketiah came on and got set- sent off about three minutes later, and we end up hanging on a bit. Jamie Vardy scored quite late, onto Nick Point. And then I think had a chance to win the game as well, but didn't get that one right. And then last year... Um, we got La- 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 <laughs> is That was, was a perfectly good goal, which actually, in a way, the goal felt a little bit reminiscent of Thomas Partey. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, glancing header. Um, Fisher allowed obviously. And then yeah, Jamie Vardy comes on at half-time. And I, I think at that point in Arsenal's development, um, most Arsenal fans probably knew what was going to happen and it did. Um, so for us to get the goal early on, I think, I know they have no Vardy this time and chose to rest a few players for the Europa League game, but I think it was important that we scored the first goal um, and scored it quite early on. Um, and I was interested by what Brendan Rodgers said after the game where he talked about Leicester starting quite well and then dominating the game, which they, you know, they did dominate the game for 20 minutes before half-time, but I didn't really see them as starting well, to be honest.
0: No, I'd agree with your assessment uh, That I mean, I suppose it's when it chooses, depends on what statistics uh, people choose to base their reliance on. You know, Leicester had more possession than us, particularly in that, in that second half of the first half but also throughout the game they had more possession than us but it was uh, apart from a couple of balls over the top or, th- or through the channels to harvey barnes it was largely kind of fairly sterile possession that we're all quite used to uh, having having seen arsenal go through some metamorphosis in the last few years um I mean, actually there were similarities in this game to, to, to the game you referenced in that in both games, we were significantly better in terms of chances created, but only this time a referee couldn't find any reason to, to deprive <laughs> us, deprive us of an opening goal. And Leicester obviously aren't playing with quite the same confidence as they were at that point in time. And we are obviously a bit happier in our own skin than we were, uh, in the, in the said fixture last year. Um, I mean, we looked very comfortable for quite a while. Um, Leicester obviously came back into it. Uh, uh, and as as we say, you know, we were a bit uncomfortable, we were, partly because we were slightly falling into the same trap as we did in the second half against Watford, which was sort of starting the game really well, feeling quite confident, comfortable, and then perhaps trying to force it a bit, you know, rather than, Rather than really having control possession springing from it, we were trying to we were trying to do a bit of that, you know, Stevie Gerrard Hollywood balls a little bit, and at times, or kind of trying to do out, you know, outrageous passes or eye of the needle passes. When actually, when we were just playing a bit simpler, we were moving Leicester around quite effectively, and so. Around the first, you know around the halfway point of the first half, we were conceding possession quite a lot, and of course that makes the team feel confident and more able to come forward. and And we will naturally retreat slightly. And you know, it's worth remembering that although Leicester are having their struggles this season, they're not they're not mugs. You know, this is a team that has only managed to bottle last four on the last day of the season two seasons in a row. Um, so, you know, there's obviously quality in that squad, even with the two or three players that perhaps would be there for the first choices that weren't weren't available for them. Um, but I think it's a sign of our improvement that for all the possession they had, there was only really Barnes getting in behind Cedric that caused us any problems at all in the match, even in the period where Leicester were kind of quite on top. Um which I suppose reflects two things. Firstly, the improvement we have defensively as a team in terms of our structure, but also uh, perhaps the fact that uh, our, our changing of our lopsided of defence to make Kateri the more defensive fullback is is uh, a logical conclusion because Cedric is a lot better going up the pitch than back the pitch. Um, not to have a go at him, but just you know, what's what? Where do you sit on 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 that and? in terms of our improvement? What do you think the key thing has been in terms of feeling comfortable in that situation?
1: Uh, I think the key thing is to have two centre-backs that you can trust and a goalkeeper that is... Um, I'm, I'm literally just thinking this about a minute ago. Aaron Ramsdale is someone that... I, he's had a wobbly couple of games. I think that mm. he was great Um his distribution. He just seems quite skittish. yeah. Well. Uh, the Watford game definitely was it the Wolves game before maybe it was but the Wolves game he didn't have a great game I didn't think Um, but generally he, he, he was back to his best on Sunday the save that he made from Harvey Barnes was a great save but he backed that up he came and got the corner that came in with a minimum of fuss and then he sent the ball I don't know if you've seen the tweet it was like uh, Aaron Ramsdale summed up in sixty seconds. Yeah, yeah. He launches this missile down the field for the Saka, who unfortunately didn't quite get it un- uh, under the control that he wanted, and the, the ball goes out of play. But um, I hadn't thought of the fullbacks I- I- in that way, but it makes sense when when you, when you say it like that. And of course, Kieran Tierney uh, did a brilliant piece of fullback play in the second half when he mm. covered round and just managed to <laughs> snatch the pool away from whoever it was that might have been about to score. Um, I, I, it, it seems to me we have better players in these key positions than we did last season, and they have made a difference that is um, illuminating, if not entirely surprising.
0: I think that's yeah, I mean, obviously we can all see that, uh, f- although our central defenders are not perfect, they aspire slightly more confidence than some of those that preceded them in recent seasons. I mean, we don't you know uh, We all know that David Luiz was capable of Titanic performances, but it was, was also capable of the opposite. And and uh, Mustafi is a, a is someone who you never knew quite what you were going to get. <laughs> um, but I think it also highlights the improvement of. Players that are actually that were here last season as well. I mean, Gabriel's taken another slight step forward this season. Uh, Tierney, I think, is is being forced to uh, discover a slightly greater tactical flexibility, and we're seeing in the role that he's having to fulfil at the moment with Tommy out, the benefit of him having played as a third centre half for both Arsenal and and Scotland in certain forms. So he's more comfortable tucking in if he needs to defensively, and and that obviously gives us flexibility to cope with absences elsewhere. But the, yeah, the, the big one for me is Thomas Party, who has, has gone from being the, the double pivot player he's been for most of his career to dropping back into the sort of single six role in terms of the team setup up that he fulfilled for part of his t- latter time at Atletico, but, but not normally with so many attacking players <laughs> ahead of him. Um, and, you know, this is, it's a new role that gives him more responsibility because I think he was probably a little guilty of deferring a bit too much to the personality that is Greenwich Jacker, who's quite a, quite a dominant force on the pitch, you know, um, yeah. and um, very sort of assertive figure. And I think Party was perhaps, yeah, deferring a bit too much to to Jacker, but also he's had a long run of being fit, you know, having been in and out with with various different injury problems last season. And um, I think it's I think it's huge in terms of just giving us more control, whilst being able to break forward in that area. And I guess what I wanted to ask is, do you think it's more down to his fitness, or do you think it's more down to this tweak of role for you? You know, just
1: <laughs> Don't give the classic uh, fence sitters answer: a little from column A, and a little from column B. I mean, I was at Brentford game last month. And I thought that he was quietly impressive in that game. The amount of ball recoveries that he makes um, are pretty phenomenal, actually. And quite often in situations where you wouldn't expect someone to win the ball back. Mm. Um, I think perhaps the improvement in his fitness um, He's now making the line-breaking passes that I think we maybe saw a little bit of last season, but very sporadically. Um, but it, there may also be an aspect of it where it's like, well, you just need to, as you say, Brandon, like to get the hell out of the way, I've got this. Um, I mean, whatever the reasons are, I mean, it, it's welcome, uh, really, really welcome. Because again, I mean, Martin Erdogan was of the show on Sunday uh, for me. But Partey was um, close pretty up. close behind him, wasn't yeah. he? Really,
0: and that's been the case for 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 again three weeks in a row. You know, not notwithstanding the the, the occasional uh, even greater than usual brilliance from from Bukayo Saka. Um, but it's really, you know, it's it's fascinating, isn't it, how that right attacking channel of our team has gone from being utterly anemic from last season and indeed much of the season before to being, you know really very strong and very well connected even the even in the absence of a first choice right back which you know can be very significant um and I suppose you know as a comparison looking at the left side which is slightly less coherent partly because is having to perform a different role partly because obviously Martinelli is is not so much of if he's a perpetual motion but he's not so much a high touch build-up player he's more of a you know, he's more of an set missile in some in some capacities. But also the new role for Granit Xhaka, where he's having to do things which are not the things he's been doing for the club for most of the time that he's been here, you know, except for maybe his first season, season and a half, where he was playing a role a bit more like this when uh, Wenger was first telling us he was a box-to-box midfielder, um, yeah. if, if we remember. Um, and, and obviously, you know, there are certain things that Xhaka will not ever be able to do as well as as martin Erdegaard, you know and they've thrown through no fault of his own he's never been that sort of player um but i just wanted to yeah get your thoughts on that left side and where you see it developing and 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 how you think how you think uh, the swiss is doing in in a role that you, you know we would not have predicted for him
1: i did, yeah i i thought he had a pretty good game on sunday i think there were definitely moments where um it moves slow down around him because he doesn't quite have the, the, the fleet-footedness of a Martin Odegaard or the nimbleness of a Bokayo Saka. Um, and he is a bit like Martin Odegaard but in that he is quite one-footed. So um, I think the job he's doing for the team at the moment is a, is a decent one. Um, I do think that um it's probably an area where um Arsenal might look to improve in the summer. Um, I wonder I I I can't help wondering if if this is the way that we're gonna play going forward, whether this is actually a position that could be filled by someone like Smith Rowe. Um not necessarily now, mm. but um, you know, Smith Rowe is someone we know he can play centrally. He's um, possibly a bit more attacking than Martin Odegaard. So, and I know that also. Obviously, we tried it last season, and it didn't work very well at all. But I've, my memory of that is we tried it once and then put it in the bin for the rest of the season. Um, so I wonder if that is something that Arteta may look to revisit. Um, but no, in the in the immediate, um, I, it's. I saw um, a tweet of uh, Shaka being accosted outside the ground on Sunday night in his car and um, someone shouting, "Shaka, I love you! And his little kid, and Shaka ends up throwing his shirt to him. And it kind of, even, you know, I don't need to go back into the Countless podcasts that I've come on here and moaned about Brandon Shaka, <laughs> but even me was watching that. I said, no, that's really great. And, um, you know, I kind of feel... As long as this is working, um, there's no need to mess with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I suppose one thing, the virtue that that Shaka has o- over smith is just that, that sort of more physical element and, and the fact that you can tuck down back more effectively into a double pivot if required. And it can also obviously provide a certain amount of, shall we say, slow uh, but positionally aware cover on the left side. Um so uh you know when if is breaking forward and and so who, i think whoever does eventually replace jack in that position it, it, it is a bit more of a box-to-box type role um not quite as advanced as Odegaard, not not quite as likely to go into wide areas and and, and, and unless we end up going the full man city replication and getting the equivalent of bernardo silver there uh i do think that i do think that we'll probably want someone with a, a bit more shall we say, defensive flexibility than smith throw in that role?
1: I mean, do you think it's something that, I mean, I, I was kind of always under the impression that Lokonga was kind of brought into deputise for Partey, but, um, yeah, Partey stays fit, Lokonga is never going to get to play. And, and I wonder if actually having watched Conga, who is very good up and down the pitch, whether that's something that maybe he will take on next season.
0: It's entirely possible and I think Lokonga is going to, you know, I, I think one thing we're seeing this this season is uh, and from the signings have been made is that Arteta's really prizing players as soon as you get past the centre halves, it's prizing players with positional flexibility, isn't it? It's people who can do more than one role and of course the more of that you have the more ability you have to be effective without having to have quite as large a squad of top level players um, because you've got people who can obviously cover different situations and I think Lokonga you know, he's, not obviously, he's obviously not at the level parties, um, but is someone that can play happily in the six, but also, yeah, in a bo- as a box-to-box role, definitely has a lot of potential. You know, he's, we've seen he's got a good passing range, he's got a decent engine. He, had, he lacks that experience and that physical man strength that Granite Jacker does have for, you know, for what flaws he has. But I think one thing that's also been really important about that role is that even though, it's not been to any great personal effect. You know, Jacques has been crashing the box, so, sort of you know, particularly against teams that we should be expected to beat to provide those extra numbers. And of course, you know, he's not ever going to be a massive goal threat, but someone has to cover him. And that yeah. obviously creates a bit more space for others. And, you know, we all know that for what flaws he has, if he hits a ball with his left foot, it does stay hit.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I've just remembered, that I'd completely forgotten about the counter attack that he led on Sunday. And then um, he ended up, he got to about 25 yards out, lined it up, and absolutely smashed it. And of course, it went over the top of the path. But this, like, this is the rehabilitation of Granite Chacker, the renaissance of Granite Chacker in my eyes, is that I didn't watch that passage of Tank Hall. For fuck's sake, why did he do that? I was actually thinking, "Oh, good on you!" You know, you you let the break. You had a shot; it didn't go in. You know, at least you tried. Um, I yeah, and I think a year ago or a year and a half ago, I'd have been swearing at the telly and kicking Tomcat. I wouldn't kick, don't kick cats, anybody. Um, no matter the provocation. Um, yeah, I, I. I said. I mean, I I don't want to go the top on him. Um, we all know he can play football. It's the um, the stupid aspects um, that we wanted to see cut out. And I think that uh, on that score, uh, not to lead the conversation anywhere, tomorrow night is going to be quite interesting in that regard.
0: Yes, certainly, will be rather more testing opposition in terms of uh, putting our players under stress. Um, I guess you know one of the things is. You know, the situation with with Jacker reached its nadir under Emery when when basically we were it got to a point of just playing basketball, football, and Xhaka was just being exposed game after game after game, and it's like what we were primarily getting to see from him was his weaknesses uh, rather rather than his strengths And um, I, I guess as the team's improved and has become less reliant on him in a way to kind of try and do everything, which we know that he's, his personality means he has an inclination to do it. it. sort of made it easier for us to see the selflessness in his play in the same way that's happened with Lacazette. You know, we've all been a pre, you know, Lacazette is getting a lot of love at the moment, um, because even though he's, you know, not being a huge goal threat, everyone can see his contribution, you know, his work rate his link play. And the fact he's playing a role, which is clearly. To the benefit of the team more than to the benefit of his future earning potential, you know, with his contract running down and and his own personal glory. Um, and you know the the song might be a little outdated now, but <laughs> scoring goals is what he does best. <laughs> There's quite a lot of other things he's doing more effectively, but
1: but oh, it was a, good, it was a cracking penalty
0: was a cracking penalty, yeah. Uh, I love the of uh, Michael trying to make out that he, the go, it was only went in because of the, the very slight pause in the run-up. It's like you could have been standing there and you wouldn't have saved it, mate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, a Van Persie-ish kind of penalty, wasn't it? Yeah. It was quite funny because they showed the graphic of where his last few penalties had all gone and they, he put them all in the same place. I said to the car, I wonder if he'll change it up. And boy, did he. It was, um,
0: well, I think on one of the commentary teams, they were saying, you know, I wonder if Cashfish Michael knows that, you know, if where, where to go. And of course, uh, it, it was irrelevant. <laughs> Cashfish Michael could have gone anywhere he wanted. He wasn't anywhere near that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So, I mean, that sort of quite naturally leads us to talk about the penalty. Um, just before I do, I just wanted to say one thing that was really interesting is in the first half as well, uh, to show how these two players are playing roles that aren't quite their natural games, uh their average position, the was higher than Lacazette's, which is kind of like something I don't think anyone could have possibly foreseen more <laughs> than about six or seven weeks ago, or certainly more than two or three months ago. Uh, so obviously the second half, uh, we changed things up a bit. We became a bit more concerned with retaining possession before trying to attack. We lifted the tempo again. And um, although it was ultimately a penalty that resulted from a scramble after a set piece, Leicester were really struggling to cope with us at the start of that second half. Um, I mean, there was a bit of consternation about the penalties and obviously Roger's trying to make out that he's, he's not a mannequin. It's like, yeah, but no one stands like that and then moves their hand towards the ball. So shut up, you oaf. Um, but there was also Arsenal fans online complaining that it should have been a red card. I mean, what was your thought on
1: well, I mean, I, I I wasn't complaining that it should. I was just asking the question if anyone knew why it wasn't. And I think the answer was because someone had cleared the ball off the line. Um, so I, I didn't have a problem with that, to be honest. Um, you know, I was just pleased that we got a penalty. That I mean...
0: they looked
1: at me. Again, I was on a call with friends on Sunday. We were laughing like, oh, we need a hotspot or something here. Because it. I, it <laughs> He played, it wasn't really clear, and then um, obviously the more that you looked at it, the more you could see there was a deviation. And I think you know we all knew once once we once Anthony Taylor went to look at the monitor what was going to happen. Yeah, um, I think how said after the game, didn't he? That he had someone, he's got someone that looks at these things, and he said, "Yeah, it's definitely a pen." Um, but yeah, I just um, Brendan Rogers always makes himself sound like a Fucking idiot, isn't he? Pardon my French. Um, yeah, you know, I not a fan, then Paul.
0: I uh, uh, just
1: you know, I know football managers pretty, you know, they they have to protect their football club and protect their players, but I mean his interpretation of almost everything that happened that within the uh, ninety minutes on Sunday was La La Land stuff to me. Um definite pen. Um stop but it was a penalty um and yeah I don't, I don't really know what else to say about it other than that
0: yeah i mean ultimately um I, I, I was surprised it took so long for var to 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 see the touch i mean maybe it was just happened to be because i saw a certain angle first but having seen the angle it was like well he's reached out he's touched it he's not touched it very much but he's touched it and of course then they took another two or three minutes looking at all, all the other angles before then going back to that angle where you could clearly see that you'd touched it touched and then but at least on this rare occasion vir actually gave the most useful angle to the referee
1: <laughs> progress
0: yeah i mean we've seen too many times this season where you know the, the angle you see the referee the angle the referees looking at and you're thinking what the hell are they showing him that You've got, you've got another angle which conclusively shows something one way or another and you're showing him something really ambiguous. Uh, you know, what's the, what, what are you doing? Um, which, you know, but anyway, um, I mean, it's nice also to come out of a game uh, It's two in a row, really, where we haven't had to be too unhappy with any refereeing decisions.
1: <laughs> I feel you know actually it was quite interesting with Anthony Taylor on Sunday. I thought he let a lot of stuff go, but I didn't mind that because it was the same for both teams. You know, football yeah, football is a physical sport
0: after all. Um Well, he always lets quite—he always lets quite a lot go, and I—and I suppose how you feel about that sort of depends on, on, how, on, on the two different teams' approaches. I mean, Leicester aren't a particularly thuggish side, so it doesn't matter, you know. But when you're playing against someone that's a bit more, a bit more elbows and studs, then obviously his leniency uh, <laughs> can can yeah. be more troubling.
1: I- I think there was a moment towards the, uh, may- maybe just before Saka got substituted, and maybe a little bit before that, where he'd been fouled. And the look of his face, he-, he was so indignant. I think he wanted the yellow card for someone, maybe. Um, yeah. Well, the same
0: bloke had- the same bloke had clattered him twice in about 10 minutes.
1: Yeah. Um, I-, I wonder how long it will long be before he starts, you know. On a serious note, getting a bit of protection because I I do feel quite strongly that there's, you know, this this kid is not just a great player for us. He's a great uh, England player, and you know, England players are supposed to get a little bit of protection, aren't they? Um,
0: Well, I guess the issue the issue is is he's uh, he hasn't fully established himself as a regular England player yet, mm, and what a difference that makes.
1: Yeah. um, like, you know, we've seen it for the last two, three seasons. Like, this kid who is a phenomenal... I was I was listening to the Tuesday Club earlier and Alan Davis was talking about being at the Watford game with his kids and saying to them, watch number seven, because right, he was right in front of them. Watch him, watch him. And then he was like, God, I hope he doesn't do anything stupid. But, like, we have got this footballer who is like... Uh, like I said generational talent is a big, big phrase, but a, a superb footballer and he's 21 years old and he's only going to get better. And he's ours. He came up through our academy and I just don't want anything bad to happen to him because referees have allowed him to have the shit kicked out of him for the last two years.
0: Yeah. And he's uh, uh, actually just for the record, he's he's still twenty for another.
1: Season. <laughs> he's uh, twenty until he's twenty-one. That's,
0: that's how it me. works. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, uh, but uh, it's also very nice for me because he's he hails from basically a bus ride from where I grew up.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I went to primary school in the same place as he did.
0: Oh, well, there you go. Uh, yeah. and yeah, uh, I mean, this wasn't uh, a standout game for him, but obviously. The great thing about Bukayo Saka is that the fundamentals of his game and the fact that his decision-making is generally a strength means that even in a game where he's not really doing anything particularly spectacular, he's still being good.
1: (laughs) And and even then he had that run that possibly could have been a penalty. uh, Yeah. I can't even remember how many players he took out of the game, but it was a, a thrilling a thrilling burst. And um actually the decision making, we were starting to talk about left hand side and then we digressed. And I think that's the one thing about Gabriel Martinelli, and I saw the growth picked up on it yesterday, where he gets into such good positions and his decision making is just it's not quite at the level of a Saka or a Smith Row. And again, he's only very young. So it's it's I I would never want to come on here and criticize him cuz I love him um but it's just if he can get that right he's going to become so much more dangerous than he already is yeah
0: and we and we have seen some improvements in that area in in recent um in, in, in recent weeks, you know, he's, as Arteta commented earlier in the season, he's sort of learning to play more than just one pace the whole time, with flat out. And, and, and you know, the nature in which he plays and the style which he plays, you know, and indeed a, a, a byproduct of his strength, does mean that, you know, he doesn't have the capacity or certainly doesn't play in the style where I think he has much chance to slow things down in the way that some others do to their advantage to to create a slightly more controlled situation um and i think uh i think it means that um you know it, it is harder for a player of his style uh, um, to be able to be as considered in the decision making and get a complete picture because they're literally going 100 miles an hour most of the time um and I think as long as we've got the balance in the team, it doesn't matter too much. I mean, of course we, we have been wasteful from promising positions as a team in the last few games and could easily have scored a lot more goals, but um, that's kind of what you get when, you know, you're, you're attacking uh, superstars are all 21 or younger, you know, you, <laughs> it's just something yeah. you have to accept. And it, it, particularly as they're all showing degrees of progress and, um, if they were stagnating, then okay, then then we wouldn't be very happy with the way things are, are, are evolving. But that's simply not the case. Um, so obviously, uh, I mean, the, what was quite interesting is that the penalty incident itself also came from a set piece. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, it wasn't sort of directly from a set piece, and it wasn't quite as simple as that. But it was. It's really rewarding to see that as you alluded to the team is continuing to evolve in that area um then having gone two up we just kind of kept the ball in a way that we didn't do quite as effectively against Watford and sort of kept Leicester pretty much at arm's length we probably should have scored one or two more we left goals out there again as we did same as we did against Watford um as reflected by the xg whereas you know we for the, how, I don't know how many games in a row, but our XG differential was very positive. We, you know, we should have scored at least two goals more than our opposition, which we did, uh, and at least two more. Um, so what's not to like, really? Uh, however, of course, this is when shit's going to get real. Uh, uh-huh. So sort of this Leicester game was, even though Leicester are obviously a, a dangerous opponent, it, it's the last of our... "Quote unquote easy run," uh, yeah. and the fixtures coming up. Obviously, there's Liverpool tomorrow, which will be <laughs> extremely challenging. I don't
1: know much about them. Are they any good?
0: <laughs> yeah, apparently
1: apparently, apparently. apparently, yeah. You know,
0: <laughs> doing a bit of a deep dive. Yeah, it, it seems okay. like they be quite, quite, quite challenging, um, and obviously. They're a team that we've really struggled with uh, in in since they sort of found their f- finalised Klopp formula, um, and and struggled with in a different way that we struggle with Man City. Uh, you know, Liverpool's great strength, of course, is not just their lightning counters, but the fact they can score different types of goals against you. You know, a lot of teams have have a not the greatest amount of variety, but Liverpool. You know, Liverpool are the Frequently, I don't know if it's still true now, but certainly as of early January, they were the the best team in the Premier League at scoring from set pieces. Uh, you know, corners. They're, they're
1: well, you know, uh, their delivery.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, lightning lightning quick counters. They've got in, in Diego Jota. They've got like a Swiss Army knife stro- uh, attacker who can be very effective across the front three and even do a decent job of the sort of number 10, advanced number 10 role. So they've, they've really got a variety of threats and, of course, a great solidity team midfield. Um, but I guess it's a good litmus test for us. You know, it's a, it's a shame we won't have a little, little bit more rest beforehand, particularly with another game so hot on the heels of it. Um, but it'd be really interesting to see where we are. I mean, obviously we managed to fluke a victory against them uh, at the Emirates a couple of years back, but no one can really claim that that was a victory we, we, uh, we entirely deserved. Um, I don't know what you mean, Matthew. <laughs> uh, but it'd be, I mean, you know, d- although Lacazette was brilliant that night, um, but it'll was it be interesting to see where we're at because we, this will be the first time we've played them since since we've been good. And certainly the first time we played them at home in quite a, you know, quite a long time. And so, although the result didn't go for us in, in the home game against Man City, you know, we saw what the situation was. And I think that, you know, that was a game that we lost through poor decision making and, shall we say, slightly uh, slightly unfavourable officiating. Um, sure. um I mean, what's your view about the Liverpool game going up? There seems to be suggestions that Mo Salah might not be available, but equally, I seem to remember about the last four times in a row we played Liverpool, they've lied about who's going to be fit and yeah. who's not before the game.
1: Well, and, it, and it's not like they don't have, um, you know, I've seen little bit, I've actually watched a bit more football than I'm used to watching recently. So I've seen, I saw bits of the, uh, the league cup final and I saw bits of the, uh, Liverpool-West Ham game last weekend, where West Ham actually, you know, if you're looking for hope tomorrow, West Ham really should have scored at least once, yeah. probably twice, and could have, you know, they didn't score any of them, but they had three really good chances at Anfield. Um, so I, I uh, I'm kind of, with you and probably most, sensible Arsenal fans are just looking at this game to see exactly how far have we progressed and can we give Liverpool a game and possibly can we get anything out of it. I mean, Liverpool are a really good side and this Diaz that they've added looked a proper player. Very glad Tottenham didn't get him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd seen enough of him beforehand to know that he was going to fit them very, very well.
1: Yeah, Um, so there's... As as you said earlier, they've got just threats from everywhere, which makes them a little bit frightening. Um, And Arsenal are going to have to be very good tomorrow night to get anything. But I think that's, you know, Um, Arsenal have been at home generally very good this season. I know there's been the odd blip here and there. So the one question I had about Sunday really was, I don't know how much it will affect mine, but I thought Arteta made these changes quite late. Mm-hmm. And I would have liked to have seen Saka come off a little bit earlier and perhaps um, Lacazette come off early because we were comfortable in that game. You know, from, from 2 0, we, we were never likely to drop points, particularly when you've got players like Pepe that you can bring off the bench. Um, so I'm said <laughs> to uh, Gaps the B earlier I don't give us any chance at all but that's just me downplaying it because I don't want to get grief if we lose tomorrow <laughs> uh, I, I, I think we'll give them a game and I, uh, I do I think we're going to win I don't necessarily think we're going to win but I think we could get something out of it I think West Ham showed last last week at Anfield that Liverpool can be dropped at, um, and it's just a case of Arteta, maybe, yeah, well, if Arteta can get the game plan right, right and the players can execute, and we keep 11 players on the pitch at all mm-hmm. times, yes, um, you know, that'll help. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a good opportunity for us actually. And it, you know, if we, if we do get something out of it, it's a bonus because we've got these games in hand. Um, and certainly if we did manage to win tomorrow, I think that would be, um,
0: That'd be a huge yeah. result, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's a big statement. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm not going into a big game for the first time in a long time, thinking, "Oh shit, um, I've, I've got a degree of hope," which is probably a bad thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's well, while they say that it's the hope that kills you, it's also the hope that gives life meaning. So, what can you do?
1: Uh, much, you know, I've started writing again. I'd much rather feel about Arsenal the way I do now than the way I did, you know, even six months ago. It's, um, you know, full full credit to Mikel Arteta because he's, he's done an incredible job. And the other thing I think is that actually, even even if things don't go away tomorrow, I don't expect this Arsenal team to sit and talk about it. I, you know, it's a tough ask to play three games in six days um mm. And going away to Villa at Saturday lunchtime, I think will be tricky. um But I, yeah, I, I just I and many other Arsenal fans, not including my uncles, you're probably aware, <laughs> actually believe in this Arsenal team. Very interestingly, just as I've mentioned, my uncle, I got a message from my cousin James that uh, on Monday yesterday, he Hi, uh, hi, Cub. Uh, Just wondering if we should try and get tickets for the last game of the season. So it's really nice to see that my uncle's extreme and unwarranted negativity has not infected his oldest son.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a nice. You know, the the key thing is we did what we had to do before this game. You know, we we've won the games that you'd hope we'd win when that's not necessarily true of all of our rivals. And so it makes this feel like a bit more of a free hit. You know, at the the end of the day, if we get a result, it'll be absolutely fantastic and will be a massive step forward towards towards us um, securing top four because, you know, this is the most difficult home game we've got left this season, without any shadow of a doubt. You know, obviously Man United will be very dangerous when they come to our place, but just because of the level of attacking talent they have in their team, but equally, we all know that they're not the most cohesive <laughs> operation at present um, and will be vulnerable. Um, so anything we can get out of this game has to be seen as a bonus. And uh, and hopefully the players can take that attitude and to, to play with a certain degree of freedom. I suppose what's going to be really interesting is seeing how Arteta is going to set up. Is he going to keep this, what we've been doing recently and having... You know, Jack have pushed forward as this kind of left-sided eight, or is he going to revert back to something closer to a double pivot? And I suppose it depends. Depends on where he sees Liverpool's vulnerabilities. You know, obviously, we've had a real trouble containing their central midfield before. Um, so, so maybe slipping him in back into a more conservative strategy doesn't really have any great merits, but it will leave us a lot more vulnerable to the counters that they're obviously so strong at. Um, but I guess. You know where does he does he where does he feel we can hurt them with the way we're playing at the moment, and and, and uh, where does he feel that you know where we can protect ourselves from, <laughs> as best we can from the manifold uh, th- threats that they offer? Um, so I'm sort of re- looking forward to it. Really interested, really. Um, yes, yeah. I, I, it's sort of. It's gonna, you know, I can sound quite relaxed about it now. I doubt I'll feel about it when the time comes. <laughs> but, um, particularly, is obviously you, you don't you don't want it to go badly wrong with a with a, with a, a difficult game against Villa on the horizon um, straight away afterwards. Which which ultimately we have to remember is worth just as many points. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the good thing is, of course, after that there's a bit of a break, so. It doesn't, you know, if our players are absolutely shattered by the end of the Villa game, as long as no one gets injured, that doesn't really matter. So we can, there's there's that comfort. Um, So yeah, we'll have to see. And, And I suppose we have to approach the game looking up rather than looking down. You know, thinking, okay, Chelsea have got some interesting issues at the moment, which may create opportunities as the season goes on. Can we catch them? You know, they were they were pretty lucky. I mean, very lucky if you include the officiating <laughs> <laughs> the victory against Newcastle, uh, for, for which has led much VAR outrage about how Newcastle didn't get a penalty there. Um, and, and and obviously it'd be, you know, better for us if Newcastle were safe by the time we played them at the end of the season. Yeah. <laughs> uh, rather than still having to fight for their lives, which I think they will be looking, you know, if, Again, ahead of those below them now. Um so speaking of those below them, before we move on to I suppose w- w- the the uh Russian elephant in the room, um I mean looking at the bottom of the table, what, what do you reckon? Leeds finally got a, a result, um, with the, with the improved performance where they actually set out to defend a bit and the post post bills are set up. But Everton look in deep shit, don't they?
1: yeah and um, as as regular listeners will know two of my best mates are Everton fans and I I, I actually both of them have explicitly explicitly mentioned the R words this week which Mm. um, in any other year I'd Find absolutely hilarious, but uh, both of them for different reasons have had quite a uh, quite a shit twelve months. So um, I don't actually want Everton to go down as funny as I would normally find it. So I'm hoping that they're safe by the uh, last game this season, because of course they're at the Emirates. Um, I yeah, they they well, they started the season well, didn't they? And then they um, you know. They had a nice home game against us in December or whenever that was, and um, other than that, it's just been horrific. Um, And uh, the thing is, uh, talking to Luke and Kev, they're just completely resigned. They're not—I don't think—they're even angry. They're just absolutely resigned to their to their fate. Um, But you know, Leeds are still down there, and who knows what will happen with them. Um,
0: Burnley are still sh- going to be short of goals for all their defensive solutions. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, they both, Burnley don't win a lot of games, do they? So as much as I, I think they've um, they've only lost only lost twelve games or something like that, but they've only won three games. And drawing games is not what's going to get you out of the shit. You know, you can win one game and then if Burnley drew two and you've won one and lost one, you you're making up one point more than Burnley every three games. Yeah. So, I mean, I really want Burnley to go down because I think they offer absolutely fucking nothing to to the Premier League. Um, I'm not bitter about watching us draw 0-0 at home with them in January at all. Um, but I guess they're just a tedious, tedious football club. or I was going to say managed by a tedious, tedious man, but actually Sean Dyche has been quite funny in his <laughs> uh, pre-match press conferences occasionally, so I'm a bit conflicted there. Um, obviously, Brentford's have had a good couple of weeks now having uh, managed to integrate Ericsson and Ivan Tony to come back. So um, Gabster B and Jimmy are a little bit... Uh, well, Jimmy thinks they're safe. No matter what, Gaps is, is going to stress about it until the point that they're mathematically safe. But Jimmy feels quite confident about
0: yeah, it. Yeah, it's quite funny. You remember my mate Dave, who did the, the, the podcast with us after? Course,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, just, about two or three weeks ago, you know, he was obviously feeling very worried as a Brentford fan, and I was saying, well, it's going to make a massive difference to them when Ivan Tony comes back. You know, he's their only real physical presence up front and their goal threat and a platform for so much of what they're going to do and he's like oh i don't you know he's been playing not very well i'm not sure he's going to make a difference and i saw a little text the weekend going "Hmm, five goals in two games i'm just going to leave that there (laughs) but obviously ericsson's if you know despite concerns about about him um He's obviously going to make a huge difference and has done already. Just that little bit of quality in key moments. And for instance, his crossing his wrong foot for Tony's goal at the weekend is like, oh yeah, yeah, he's really good. Um, but yeah, I mean Everton, it's it's I think the thing that makes me worried for them is is what you say is you know, your friends are not alone in kind of having given up. They're not even in the bottom three. And, uh, and, but a lot of the fan base there seems resigned, even though they're out, you know, out of the bottom three and goal difference with three games in hand over Watford, You know that should be a position of, that provides a sense of optimism. But it looks like uh, the uh, Frank Lampard bounce didn't last very long. No, no.
1: Um, <laughs> I just wanted to mention that I ended up having an utterly pointless argument with Jabs yesterday. Uh, Garth Crooks had said something about Ivan Tony being a uh, good signing for Arsenal. And he was like, oh yeah, 50 million plus, I reckon, although I'm not sure he's skillful enough for Arsenal. And I was like, I'd be quite upset if Arsenal dropped 50 million quid on Ivan Tony." And yeah. he was like, what, don't you think he's worth it? I'm not. Like, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying I don't want Arsenal <laughs> to spend 50 million on Ivan Tony, which they're not going to anyway. Hmm. I, I would imagine setter and Edda have got something a bit more um, imaginative cooked up for the summer, at least I hope they do. Um, but yeah, just this thing about, I, I get that he's worth 50 million quid to you if you sell him, but I'm not sure he's worth 50 million quid to anyone that's buying him, or would be buying him.
0: Yeah, it's 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 the it's the Wilfred Zaha conundrum, isn't it?
1: Yeah. yeah
0: it's it's exactly the same thing as, you know, the reason he's at Palace is because he's worth more to Palace than he is to any club that would buy him. Uh, and that's, and that's, that's essentially why he didn't end up at Arsenal. Um, Cause he's too valuable for the team he's at. Um, anyway, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Everton. Obviously it's been a very, very, very long time since they've been out of the top flight. And I'm sure if they were to go down, there'd be a lot of vultures hovering around their attacking players, particularly um, I mean, the level to which they're underachieving is slightly confusing, really. I mean, their defence, we know, isn't great, but they've got enough quality elsewhere in the team, you'd really expect them to be grinding, grinding out more results. But anyway, we shall see. Um, we'll round this one out uh, with, we we can't not talk about it, the ever-evolving situation at Stamford Bridge. I mean, obviously, it's contextualised by seriously bad shit happen, happening uh, in in the Ukraine, which is almost, even now it's been going on for nearly three weeks. It's still slightly unbelievable that it's happening. Yeah. Um. As well as obviously deeply upsetting, and and yeah, it sort of reminds you of the powerlessness so many of us have, the whims of one or two extremely powerful fuckwits out there in the world um, who have no regard for human life as it stands in the way of their personal ambition. Um, And, of course, as Arsenal, you know, we have one of our own, as it were, uh, Oleg Luzhny, formerly of this parish, has put his coaching career on hold. He was hoping to actually get a coaching job in England and perhaps even looking at uh, trying to get a gig at Arsenal. Um, but he's one of many very high-profile sports stars, you know, probably risking his life to try and help his country.
1: Um, yeah, there, was a, there was a nice touch from Arsenal at the weekend where they put his—they um, listed him in the squad list on the back of the program.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I noted that. And and one—I mean—one thing we have to say is, you know, I have no great love or loathing for West Ham, and obviously, given that they're potential top. You know, European rivals for us, I could do with them dropping a few more points just to give. But I mean, it was fucking great that Jarmolenko scored that goal at the weekend, particularly for all the problems he's had over the last two or three years with injuries as well. Uh, and it was a really well taken goal, and it just was an incredible moment of human emotion. And of course, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's utterly trivial. But for him, uh, it's not trivial, and I, and I just hope that. That moment and the reaction there can provide some comfort to some people yeah. who are being affected by this situation. You know, you just I guess while our states, uh, our, our governments are, are sort of playing at intervention without necessarily intervening in ways they shouldn't have been doing for the last 15 years anyway, particularly this government who seems to be determined to tell everyone how wonderful it is with being refugees without taking any. Um, It's, uh, you know, I I just hope that those people who are suffering or who've managed to get out, but whose families or homes are suffering can get some kind of positive support and feeling of support from the fact that, There is so many public expressions of of sympathy and and concern and interest. And and obviously football that's going all around the world is is a very public way of doing that. Um, But one thing the government has done is, uh, along with other countries, is sanctioned oligarchs. And despite their initial reluctance to do so, has finally sanctioned the most famous oligarch of them all. Uh, I mean, obviously Everton's former Arsenal oligarch who never gave us any money but did put some money into Everton has uh, has been sanctioned for a while now and the boats are seized around the world. Uh, well, they, they will love these yachts, don't they? These wankers. Um, yeah. But what a terrible shame it is to see Roman, I bought Chelsea to avoid an Assassin's bullet, Abramovich, <laughs> uh, finally being recognised for being what he is, which is someone who whatever his personal politics are <laughs> has coded up to and has benefited hugely from uh initially the corruption under yeltsin but then also the continued fostering of it with with putin and while i have some sympathy for the fact that if you're a very rich russian you probably don't want to annoy vladimir putin too much <laughs> um there are, you know, it's a you can stay silent without being too chummy, and and Abramovich definitely has been closer than he should have been to a very very scary figure. Um, obviously, we're still kind of digesting exactly what it's going to mean for Chelsea. You know, there's talk about buyers, but I think is what's really interesting is, you know, the the big buyer that's been mentioned is Saudi. That's that's the one that came out yesterday. Is uh, someone. Uh-huh. Who, who isn't at all connected to the Saudi estate or the Saudi investment fund, despite the fact, of course, he's connected uh, because you just look at follow the money. Oh,
1: well, yeah! Wasn't there the at the weekend? Uh, Newcastle and Chelsea played against the backdrop of eighty-one uh, people being beheaded in uh, Saudi Arabia.
0: Well, that's one of the things I wanted to t- touch on, which is why I mentioned the Saudi bid. Is obviously this is going to this has led to people suddenly and, you know, <laughs> Suddenly realizing that perhaps, like having our clubs owned by massive human rights abusers who indiscriminately murder their population on stupid pretexts or steal the entire st- uh, funds of the country for personal glory might not be a great look.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, I mean, I suppose what we're your opinion on is firstly, just, you know, from what you know, how you see the situation playing out at Chelsea. Um, also, a secondary question, which you know, probably doesn't get any points, but how funny is it? And uh, also, you know, do you think this is going to extend beyond Chelsea to perhaps some of the other parties who've managed to somehow bypass the fit and per- proper persons test?
1: Well, you would hope that you know this, this this moment in the history does become uh, a tipping point um, in the ownership of Premier League football clubs, that, but. I guess the difficulty will be how is that change facilitated? Mm. Um, you know, it isn't Chelsea Ray or my mum or any of the nice guys that I play football with that are Chelsea fans. It's not their fault that Roman Abramovich bought their football club. Um, and I do get that it's probably quite unfair for those, for those fans um, to see their football club um, you know, effectively not able to spend any money. But at the same time, as Jamie Carragher pointed out uh yesterday or possibly on Sunday night, um Yesterday, yeah. Yesterday, um, you know, Kelsey fans have twenty years of lauding it over the or, or not twenty years <laughs> Yeah, well let's call it twenty years of lording it over the rest of us and then it was only when Man City were brought out. Chelsea were like, oh, well, maybe financial fair play is a thing that should happen. Um, You know, their football club have taken whoever they've wanted to take. You know, there have been countless examples of Arsenal trying to sign someone and then Chelsea coming and blowing us out of the water. No matter the the trophies that Arsenal may or may not have won um, in in that time. Um, So I... Like I said, I, I'm sympathetic to the nice Chelsea fans that I know. And as Chelsea Ray pointed out on Sunday evening, you know, where do Arsenal play for so football? We play in the Emirates Stadium. So, yeah, we're taking money from the airline of Saudi Arabia. Um, so, so I, it's, I don't know. Maybe it's not as grey as, uh, uh, as it feels, but... Um, I I think we'd all like our football clubs to be well run by decent people that aren't human rights abusers. I I don't know if the genie's already out of the bottle. Um, What will happen to Chelsea in the long run? Uh, Chelsea, I think, will probably be fine. Uh, You know, there's there's no appetite, I think, to bankrupt Chelsea Football Club and drive them out of business. I did laugh. I think it was a Tory MP at the weekend described them as a great cultural institution. <laughs> cultural Chelsea, really? You Um So yeah, I, I think Chelsea would be all right. I, I do think there the need to. I mean, there's been this fit and proper person uh, test that doesn't seem to be applied to anyone. Um, you know, I, I, I did laugh when Ralph Rangnick was talking about oligarchs being involved at Everton and Arsenal and saying, yeah, but we didn't get any money out of our oligarchs. So, uh, leave us out of it. Just because we're competing with you for the top four doesn't mean that we should also be fans, and, Um Yeah, you know, and I think also, actually, as, as an Arsenal fan who, you know, we've grown up with a football club that's been run by a board... Um, who were very much custodians of the football club. You know, the Hillwoods were the chairman, had the chairmanship at Arsenal for, you know, I, I don't even know. I think it goes back possibly to Chapman, maybe not as far as that, but someone will. Uh, <laughs> it does let us know if I've got that wrong. But my point is, like, we have grown up with Arsenal being looked after as a proper you know the Bank of England football club the football club that does things in the right way and um, to see these changes around us and um, it's I guess it's a little bit jarring a little bit but then it's also been happening now for 20 years so yeah I okay. know, you... go ahead no, I was just to say maybe we've possibly come a bit desensitized it I don't know if I'm making any sense.
0: I mean, for me it's one of those things that, you know, this has obviously been a massive bugbear of mine for a, a long time. And I think Chelsea fans have, as New and as Man City fans have subsequently, and Newcastle fans have starting to, uh, because it's an attack on their club. But they're not really willing to engage with the issue in a in an honest way. Um, In terms of you know, we're not saying we don't want. It's not about someone rich buying your team. You know, it's about someone rich buying your team who is an evil motherfucker who's who is at the best has stolen a shitload of money from the people of his country and has helped prop up a basically authoritarian dictatorship that, that, that. Poses as occasionally as a democracy, or worse than that, a country with countries that are appalling human rights records, is the other case. And uh, I suppose what they need to ask themselves is: Were people as upset when Jack Walker bought Blackburn? And the answer is no. It's not about you know if it was if this candy bloke and his consortium come in and continue to put money into Chelsea, that will at least feel real because there's someone who isn't just using it for personal gain. And then therefore, and therefore is willing to throw all the money they can at it because actually the money is kind of a secondary issue. Um, you know, particularly when that money has, is basically, as I say, st- stolen by either violent or non violent means from people who whose lives have been uh, made considerably worse as a result. You know, it's one of the reasons why many of us, you know, although the money would have been nice, never wanted Usman to get control of the club when, yeah. he was, when he was on the board here because it's like, dodgy, murky fucker with really dangerous, scary friends uh, who is basically profited from dodgy deals that have been screwing millions of people out of what they should be getting for themselves. Um, so my sympathy for Chelsea, obviously, it, obviously, if it comes in a situation where Chelsea are like going to go bankrupt, then obviously my level of sympathy is considerably greater because that's not their fault. Although, of course, they were about to go bankrupt before Bramir swooped in. Um, but... But in terms of you know having their wings clipped and having to go through a period of uncertainty, I've got no sympathy at all because ultimately, very few Chelsea fans have been willing to stick their head above the parapet about about Abramovich.
1: And I think yeah, that's what makes this quite interesting, isn't it? When the, there was the applause around the Premier League grounds last last week for Ukraine and the Chelsea fans, uh, whoever they were playing. So to use that force to for chant Roman Abramovich's name and then you've got John Terry tweeting about what a legend Roman Abramovich is or whatever it was he said. You just like read the room guys.
0: Yeah and, and you know it's a difficult one because obviously no fan base is a homogenous you know a lot, of, a lot of opposition fans view Arsenal as just being the wankers and Arsenal fan TV um, but uh, you know Chelsea anyone that's been following football for more than 30 years knows that Chelsea football club for all its evolution in that time has a very strong fan base of deeply unpleasant racist people, which is it's not obviously the majority of the fans at all, but it is a strong core element, which of course will make up a part part of the away support and what have you. And of course, let, let us not forget that John Terry's rap sheet is a fairly lengthy piece of paper. Um, not, not to mention his his Simian nfts, which thankfully seem to be going tits up. but um what the what I think is really interesting about this is is who buys Chelsea? because Chelsea aren't going to glad to go bust. they're going to be sold. They're going to be propped up one or another with some negotiations at the end of the season. They're going to be sold, and then someone else will be running the entity and it, it's a case of who that is you know will the premier league have the balls to not sell them to another saudi regime now that everyone's looking or will, will they have a will they have the the self-awareness to just offer a bit more scrutiny about what who's coming in and what the what the intentions are and then of course if someone does buy them how are they going to run things is it going to be someone more like the Cronkies, or more like or would it be more like uh Man United's owners that no one likes? Will it be someone a bit like John Henry? Or will it be something else that we haven't seen yet before in the Premier League? And and so whatever happens, Abramovich coming to Chelsea radically transformed British and European football. And whatever happens at Chelsea is going to potentially be quite a quite a significant impact beyond just Chelsea. And certainly this whole issue is thrown up, as I say, the wider discussion, which I don't I don't know how they can. And do something about the owners they've already let into the league but it should certainly you know the football's ability to hide in the weeds and pretend it's got nothing to do with anything has, has been widely exposed by this and, and it was very heartening to see Gary Neville admit that basically he was wrong about sports washing when he was talking on Monday Night Football last night because um, uh, he was always thinking that football could be used to you know change these regimes and I'm like these they just did the fuck away <laughs> You know They don't care about what we they, – they they're using football to basically try and uh, diversify their economic interests and, and build up support for their economic portfolios and get a bit of cultural leverage. That's all it is. They don't give a shit what you think about them, about their gay rights or whatever, and that's not going to change anytime yeah. soon. Um, I mean, I suppose the, the other thing that comes out of it is – the specific, specific elements of the sanctions against Chelsea, you know, it does seem strange to me that that you know, they're closing the club shop because they don't want the receipts to go to Abramovich, but you just you can just ring fence those funds. You don't have to, you know, and and and, and as others who were the more Chelsea bent have pointed out, there are people who would be affected by this who are just in staff, you know, they've got nothing to do with anything. And, and I think that's where perhaps it needs a bit of a rethink. And obviously, there will be a bit of negotiation about the travel fees because they're not going to be sticking Chelsea players on easy jet tickets having to buy their own luggage allowance. Um, but I mean, who knows what impact that might have on Chelsea going forward? So far, they seem to be coping with the remarkably well, and and Thomas Tuchel is coming out of this looking very good because of his ability to straddle the straddle the, the and be very honest about the conflicted position he's in, and you know how what his personal views are. But um,
1: yeah, he's, he he seems to be too good for that for a football club. I was, I've been really impressed by what he's had to say since this yeah. all kicked off.
0: Right, I know you've got a shoot, and we've probably talked everything to death anyway, but is there anything else uh, to say about this particular issue?
1: Sorry? I'll do it. No, no, I, yeah, I, it's just, you kind of want to laugh about it, but I think, I, I, as I mentioned in the piece that I wrote for David Cannon at the weekend, it's given that it involves a war in which hundreds of thousands of people, well, are being murdered arbitrarily. It's not something to really laugh about, is it?
0: No, and of course it's tragic and disgusting that it's taken something so horrific to make both our government and the Premier League finally be willing to actually look at what's going on under their very noses, and often in the case of our government, uh, to their own personal benefit. Oh,
1: <laughs> We
0: need a whole other podcast. That's that's a box I'm just going to put the lid back on. (laughs) Otherwise, there's a three-hour special with various various guests waiting to be curated on that particular one. Um, I mean, not much else to say, uh, I guess, except for uh, the women's team won again at the weekend. Chelsea uh, prize so i mean if chelsea win all their games in hand in the women's league then they'll be champions but uh, you know assuming the results keep going there as they are but it's going it's it's a real two horse race and uh, you know given that the 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 games in hand versus points uh, disparity is so close i guess i'd rather have the points even in a, a league that is as uh, top heavy as the women's super league and um the under 23s uh, managed to throw away a, a 2 0 lead to draw 2 all yesterday against Blackburn Rovers, which is a, a little disappointing. But uh, given how many players who would normally be in that age group are currently not in that age group, I, I guess one has to be philosophical about it. And it's not about are developing.
1: As some have been sitting on the first team bench at the moment.
0: Indeed, indeed. Yes. Swanson got a look on the bench at the weekend, which I think is a good reward for a player that's always flown under the radar and doesn't have any great standout attributes, but very tactically flexible, tactically intelligent um, and can do a job in a number of different roles. So good for him. You know, personally, I don't see him ever really making much of an impact at Arsenal level, but, uh, you know, the, the, I think he'll somewhere that will have a decent career somewhere. So, um, and who knows, might even do end up doing something like Luke Haling and working his way back up the leagues to the Premier League. Because I remember seeing Luke Haling as a 17-year-old in the Arsenal Youth Cup team and thinking, you know, he's a real player there, but he's not quite big enough or quick enough or strong enough to be able to play his position for a yeah. club like Arsenal. Um, anyway. All right. I think that's it from, from me, unless there's anything else from you, Paul.
1: No, I'm good. Thank
0: you very much. Okay, well, thank you, listeners, if you got this far. I hope you found it uh, interesting, rewarding, distracting, entertaining, I don't know, any of the above. If you can find any positive narratives, we'll take whichever you've got to offer. Alternatively, if you want to send criticism, please do. You can at me. Uh, which will be in the description of this, or you can add Daily Cannon. Uh, and, of course, look out for more coming this way. Uh, we'll catch Stephen's uh, tactic videos, which break down things in a bit more detail. Uh, they're on YouTube now. And uh, have a wonderful week. Hopefully, the next time we speak to you, somehow, we will be six points the richer, uh, which would be extraordinary. But it would be very, very, very pleasing and would make us uh, have a much more relaxing international break. All right. Take care, everyone. Cheerio. Copy the out no <laughs> Too uh <laughs>